All right, thank you guys. Good seeing you everyone this morning. Let me join in and offering a, a word of welcome to you if you are a guest this morning, uh, whether here in person or online. We're so glad that you have chosen to be a part of our worship experience. And uh, we would love to know that uh, you are here and being a part of this experience with us. So we do hope that you would take the time today or during the course of the week to uh, text FL Respond uh, to the number that is provided 833-571-3475. And you may have questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, maybe if you're a follower of Christ already, how do you become a part of a church family, which is a vital part of our faith experience, being and living our faith in community. And we'd love to be able to have a conversation with you about that. And we'll look forward to that. All right. Well, let's open our Bibles back to the book of James chapter five. This is the final installation in uh, the book of James. We've been walking through this verse by verse, and this is really kind of a hodgepodge of topics uh, this morning in the uh, these concluding comments that James is making. And uh, so my effort is to try to put these into some sort of uh, consolidated form where we can grasp a common theme and idea through this that we can take and apply to our lives. And uh, this morning, I, I want us to look in particular at verses 12 and through the end of the chapter in verse 20. A few weeks ago, I came across uh, a, a an old visual, a video of the 1980 presidential debates, uh, candidate debates between President Jimmy Carter then and Ronald Reagan. Uh, I then did a little research and found a transcript. You can find these things now and uh, found a transcript to that speech as well. And after watching the debate, and then reading the transcript of the debate, going back and looking at the content of what was said, two things stood out especially in contrast to today's uh, political climate, in contrast to the culture in which we live and the, in the climate of public discourse that we have today. But two things stood out in that 1980s debate between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Uh, two words I would say is civility and substance. Civility and substance. They were cordial. They were collegial. Uh, and they had content, they had substance. I challenge you today in this, in this era of sound bites and cliches, I challenge you the next time you watch any kind of debate or discussion, uh, especially political debates or discussion, turn the sound off on your, on your television and just watch the closed captioning below. And, it's, and it's, it's startling of what is not being said. Uh, just the absence of substance, the absence of critical thought and commentary. We live in a day and time, social media, mainstream media, where everything is presented with great hostility, uh, extremist attitudes, extremist opinions. Everyone is mad, everyone is angry, everyone is seeking uh, to demonize. There is no consensus building in our culture today. And so I, I think James has been very relevant for us in that type of culture today where individuals are seeking to be uh, divisive or seeking to be attacking, where there is no just uh, common dialogue and differing of opinions that are being shared with, with others, that in this day of vitriolic attack and venomous, poisonous attack against people, everything being defined as either good or evil, I think James has been helpful. Uh, because James has had a great deal to say about speech, forms of speech that he has referenced. In fact, every chapter in James, he's talked about forms of speech that are divisive, 
forms of speech that have manifested themselves within this messianic community that he is aware of, that he is concerned about, and he has in every chapter, you can go back to chapter one and verse 13, verse 26 in that same chapter, chapter two and verse 12, uh, he makes reference to the divisiveness of the tongue, chapter three and verse six, chapter four and verse 11. Then last week we saw as he was talking about patience and pleading for patience. Uh, within that messianic community, he, he makes reference to the tongue, do not complain, he says there in verse 9. But what James does now, as we've finished up with verse 11, as we transition into verse 12 now, James mentions a final form of divisive speech. Speech that he considers to be detrimental to the body of Christ, that is our witness and our testimony. That, that is James' greatest concern. That is, our public testimony as a community of faith, as a believing body, our public testimony to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, that you are exhibit A, he has already said back in James chapter 1 and chapter 2 as well. You, you are exhibit A, if you will, of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God among men. And so your speech patterns and the form of speech forms of speech that we can embrace, they can be divisive within the body of Christ, but they can also, and this is to our detriment, bring great harm to the body of Christ in people's understanding, the unregenerate, the lost, their understanding of what it is to be a follower of Christ. And so the final form that James addresses here of this negative kind of speech pattern has to do with oath-taking. He says, but above all, now, this doesn't mean of utmost importance. One of, the, one of the downsides, just a side note here, one of the difficulties of interpreting James is this is the only letter we have from James. It's a little bit easier to inter interpret Paul because we have so many letters that were written by Paul. So whenever you come across something that maybe is difficult to interpret, you can find what he said maybe the same way in another one of his letters. But, but we could use this statement here by James. It, it, it is not uh, if we were going to rank things of importance of all the subject matter that he has addressed. This certainly wasn't fall in that. But it's almost say, saying, let me address in conclusion. As I've been talking a great deal about negative forms of speech that are divisive to our witness, that are divisive to the body of Christ, let me say finally, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. It's talking about oath-taking. Detrimental to our witness, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no so that you do not fall under judgment. Now let me ask you, do those words sound familiar to you at all? They ring familiar at all? It sounds very similar, doesn't it, to the teachings of his brother Jesus. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, if you wanna go back to chapter, chapter five, Matthew's Gospel, Let's begin in verse 33 and listen, listen to the words of James' brother, Jesus. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, take no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem. All, in other words, all these things you're making an oath, an oath on, that you're swearing on, they're all connected to me all connected to God in some form or fashion. 
nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. But make sure your statement. Now this is the key, the key emphasis on this subject. But make, your state, but make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything else, anything beyond these is of evil origin. Now the concern, if we understand the context properly of what James, what James is concerned with, and that's the witness and the testimony of the church out in the world, the concern of both Jesus and James isn't, isn't as much the oath-taking, and you can make arguments biblically. There are certain legal situations where oath-taking is acceptable. They're talking about everyday speech patterns, everyday interaction. Both of them are not as much concerned with oath-taking as they are honesty, our integrity as a people of God. Their argument, both Jesus and James, their argument is, is that we ought to be, be a people of, search, of, of people of such virtue, of people of such character, that the words we say need no bolstery, they need no buttressing, if you will. That our yes is so reliable, you know I mean yes. My no is so reliable, you know I mean no. It doesn't need any kind, of bust, bust, uh, any kind of bolstering up to make me more believable. It's about integrity and character. But now then, I want you to notice what James does. Having addressed all of these negative speech patterns that are divisive to our witness and to the fellowship and the community of the church, James now addresses another form of speech. And it's a form of speech that he has already addressed back in chapter 1 in verse 5, if you've been following along with me all summer long through this series. Because back in chapter 1 in verse 5, he says, in our times of tribulation, our times of hardship, for those of you that lack wisdom, you pray, you ask the Father. And then he goes on for the next chapters showing what the lack of wisdom looks like. And now what James is doing to bring, bring this book to a conclusion is he is addressing prayer once again. So prayer at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 5, and now here we go with verse 13 of chapter 5. And so this idea that James is writing and has bookended his letter with the subject of prayer. Remember, this is a community that is sitting on a powder keg. These are a people that are de dealing with the most, most difficult of circumstances beyond any degree of imagination we could come up with sitting here. And there are those who want to revolt. There are those that want to fight. And James has made clear in chapter one that none of this, this kind of attitude, that doesn't represent the heartbeat and the mind of God. And so he has been pleading for them, asking them to pray for a wisdom to help you to endure, to persevere, to get through this. And then he spends the rest of this book having asked them to pray for wisdom. Now then, this is what the absence of wisdom look like, looks like and how it's being played out in your life. And now here we are again talking about prayer. 
Prayer has not been central in thought in the life of this messianic community as it should be, and it has become problematic. And it's a wonderful reminder for us, especially in the church today, in our affluence in Western culture, when we think we have need of nothing, how easy it is for the people of God to drift away from this heartbeat, this lifebeat activity that is to define us as the people of God, and that's our prayer life. Manette Drumright, the widow of Huber, biblical scholar Huber Drumright, was a professor at Southwestern Seminary. She once made a comment in chapel I've never forgotten. She said that at Pentecost, and she was talking about, of, she was talking about what should be the centrality of prayer in the church. She said at Pentecost, they prayed 10 days, preached 10 minutes, and 3,000 were saved. She said, churches gather today, you pray 10 minutes, you preach 10 days, and you see the results. James is passionately desiring for the church, for the people of God, that we be a unique and distinctive people that are defined by prayer. And he says we are to pray exhaustively. Notice how he describes it here in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He's he's going to describe a catalog of situations. Is anyone among you suffering? We already know they are from chapter 1. They're going through great trial, great tribulation and hardship that is unimaginable. Are any of you suffering? Pray. I've already told you, pray. If any of you lack wisdom, pray. Ask the Father who desires to give it to you so that you can endure and persevere through this. Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? All these various life situations and seasons and circumstances in which we can find ourselves. Some are suffering here today. Some are cheerful today. Listen, sing praises to God. It's a part of your prayer life. Sing praises to God. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. And when James uses the word elders at this stage in the writing of what would become the New Testament canon, the elder, it's not yet an official office. He's just talking about call the old men. That would be a way we could understand. Call, call the old white-haired saints. You call the old, white, old white-headed men. You call those that are long in tooth in the faith, those that are mature in the faith. You call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, now remember, James is addressing specific issues within that church, different life situations within this church. He's not offering to us something that has to be prescriptive for, for every church in every situation. Now, the oil that he refers to here in ancient days, oil had its medicinal purposes, if you were to go read the story, the parable of uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, what did the Good Samaritan do for the victim? He poured oil, part of what he did. He part, poured oil over his injuries, so it was a common medicinal approach to dealing with with injuries. But in this context, it's much more. In ancient times, it was also an act of of consecration. Uh, it's not unlike, it's, and I hate to use the word symbolism because symbolism is so diminishing, I think, in our heritage that when we refer to something as symbolic, that, that means it's unimportant. 
And the idea of symbolism and powerful metaphors, I think, are lost on our culture today. But I think this anointing with oil, I view it as, as, as somewhat like baptism or the communion that, that we will participate in tonight. There is something very powerful about this. And doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus invokes his presence, invokes the life and ministry of the resurrected one. And so there, there is something very powerful about this imagery that, that is being utilized here. And so we're called upon whatever our situation, our stage in life, whatever our circumstance, we, we are to pray exhaustively in all situations. Now what you will notice and what should stand out for us, especially in our first world Western culture that we live in, the circumstances that, that James, when you're sick and you're suffering, those are very profound seasons in life. And by that, I mean when, when you are sick, and sick here can mean fatigue, and in, in the scriptures, you know, the word sick, it can mean a wide variety of things. It can mean anything from, uh, from just general fatigue and malaise all the way to death itself, everything in between. But there is something very profound about these seasons of life when, when you are sick and you are suffering, profound in the sense that they can shape you theologically for the good or for the bad. And I've seen it do both things. Where some pray and their suffering and their hardship and their circumstances don't change, uh, they, just, they, they just walk away from their faith completely. Whereas others all the more are drawn into the presence of God, all the more because of their sickness and their suffering and their life circumstances, they are drawn all the more away from their selfish independence, all the more to their dependence upon the heavenly Father and, and their reliance upon him, their trust in him alone. James, is not, James could not relate to praying about, you know, my, my world tour trip, my, my luggage got lost. James would not relate to that kind of affluence and our inconveniences of our affluent lives. James is talking about genuine suffering and hardship that shape people's lives in ways that are profound. Paul had that same approach to prayer. Paul told Timothy back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Paul had ulterior motives here. Paul is concerned about the mission of the church. It's not earthly concerns, it's, it's the worldly, it's the, it's the mission of the church in the world. First of all, he said to Timothy in verse 1, chapter 2, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people for kings and all who are in authority so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So as a part of this, Paul says, I want you to pray in all situations. I want you to pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people for all ki that are in all kinds of circumstances so that all might be saved. I want you to pray for leaders. I want you to pray for emperor. I want you to pray for presidents. I want you to pray 
for the sake of the mission of the gospel. You know who the emperor was at this time? Nero. When Paul wrote these words, it was Nero, the emperor, who ultimately would have Paul put to death. And yet here is Paul saying, I want you to pray for this man because we have a mission that needs, we don't want to be encumbered. And so you see the urgency of James in writing about the quality of our prayer life. It is to be done exhaustively in all situations. There is this anticipation that we are going to be a praying people. And I almost hate to even say it's anticipated or it's expected. Let me say it this way. It is presumed by the biblical writers. It is presumed by God that we are going to be a praying people. Even when Jesus is is instructing his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 about prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, it's an assumption. You're going to be a praying, my disciples are going to be a praying people. So when you pray, he says it three times uh, there in verses seven, uh, five, six, and seven. When you pray, but when you pray, when you pray. And based upon that assumption, he would say in verse nine of Matthew six, this then is how you should pray. Luke eleven nine. Ask, seek, knock, an assumption that we're going to be a praying people. Even Paul would join in this chorus of expectation, of assumption when when it comes to this subject of prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, he says in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. To the church at Thessalonica, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to pray continually. Always, that doesn't mean being on your knees the whole time. It's an attitude and a perspective towards life. It's an attitude. I'm in constant prayer and fellowship with the Father. And it's only as we are pursuing this kind of exhaustive prayer life that James is describing here that we can become the kind of people that he's describing that we should be in the previous verses and chapters. And so we are to be a people who pray exhaustively and then he says secondly we are to pray effectually notice he says in verse 15 and the prayer of faith well is he is he talking about the one that's being prayed for is he talking about the elders who have come to pray well the, grammatically it, it points to the those who have come to pray it's the one who is sick uh, him or his family her or his family that have asked the elders to come and pray so it's a reference to the kind of prayers that are effective prayers of faith the prayers of God's faithful those those who take seriously their their walk with the Lord, those whose life is defined by by their relationship with Christ. Their desire in every arena of life to see glory and honor brought to him. It's, It's a contrast, if you will, to the very prayer life that James describes back in chapter four and verse three and four, where he said, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. 
You adulteresses, you, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So when he talks about prayers of faith, that this, this isn't something you just turn on in the crisis of life. This isn't a reference to those kind of prayers that anyone offers at any time who have no regard for the things of God, whose life is not informed every waking moment by their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but let the wheels fall off life and let hardships come, let something inconvenience them. All of a sudden they wanna pray. Those are ineffectual prayers. These prayers that are effectual emerge from a life that is devoted and dedicated to being a follower follower of the Lord our God, whose faith actually informs their life. And the prayer of faith will restore. Interesting side note there, the the way that James, that word soteria in the Greek New Testament is a word commonly translated as saved, soterion, soteria as it is here. But it's normally translated as slave, James does it differently. James translates it as being restored, being healed, being delivered. And the prayer of faith will restore, save, deliver the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Back in ancient days, there was a belief, it's not unfounded, still some situations today, were sin, certain sins, and sin results in sickness. You embrace certain lifestyles that are outside the design of God, that's a part of the brokenness and the sickness of the created order. But notice what James says here. The prayer of faith will restore, make whole, the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. It's an act of faith to invite these men of faith to come and pray for them. And as they prayed for salvation, as they prayed for deliverance, listen, we can never separate, not biblically, it's a dangerous thing, precarious thing, whenever we try to separate physical healing from spiritual healing. We need to understand healing in whatever its form, we need to understand healing, at least from a biblical worldview. We should understand as believers this idea of healing. We should understand that as the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That all healing bears manifestation of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And any healing that we experience now in this temporal, physical realm, listen, it's just a foretaste of the greater salvation, the greater healing, the ultimate healing that is to take place in the resurrection. Even the healing ministry of Jesus pointing, pointed to something different. It pointed to something bigger. The the ministry of healing that Jesus performed was something that alluded to and pointed to a greater salvation and a greater deliverance, a greater healing that will be eternal and forever. Because here's what I don't think we ever think about. Do you know every healing ministry that Jesus ever performed 
We can only imagine the joy and the celebration for both the individual and their family. But what we never consider is that every one of those individuals eventually died. Imagine what a celebration it was when Jesus went to the grave of Lazarus, his best friend, and raised him up. Lazarus, come forth. What a celebration that was for for his family. Can you imagine how overwhelming that would have been emotionally? And yet there came a time when Lazarus died. Scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You say, well, do we, do we not pray for healing when we're sick? No, absolutely. Because it bears testimony. We pray for healing. Healing occurs. It bears testimony to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Well, what if they're not healed? Well, there's, there's a greater healing that took place for the believer. There is a greater deliverance. Because, see, this body is corruptible. Even if we are miraculously healed from some sickness or illness, we're still eventually going to die. This body is designed for death. This body is subject to decay. I mean, I look in the mirror today, I go, man, who is this guy? Who is this old guy? I mean, I... Man, the only thing, only thing growing on me now is my nose and my ears. Yeah, that's just part of the aging process. And this, and this body is going to die one day, regardless of how much I exercise, regardless of how well I try to eat, I'm going to die. That's what this body does. But it's pointing to a resurrection body that is fit for the eternal, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a body that is fit for the temporal realm, but it is just a foretaste of the resurrection body that is not subject to death, that is not subject to decay, that will be fit for all eternity. You see, that's why James would point to these kind of effectual prayers. Things happen, things get accomplished. Restoration takes place. When he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another, what sins? The sins that have been evident in the life of this messianic community. Pray for one another so that you may be healed, so that you may be restored. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much, which leads me to a quick a very quick final thing, and that is we must pray earnestly, seriously, persistently. It says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly, persistently, and that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He prayed persistently. And just as he believed that God would answer his prayer and it would not rain, he had the same belief that if he prayed that it would rain and it did rain. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There are those that have drifted away in the church. There are those that have drifted away in this messianic community. 
And Paul sees, or James rather, sees these who live in this spirit of prayer have a power and ability to draw people back into the fold, draw them back into the fellowship who have been, who have, who have been led astray by falsehood, who have wanted to operate independently and not be a part of, of the greater body. With this kind of prayer, Paul believes there is restoration. And it happens not with extraordinary saints, just ordinary saints. Elijah was just an ordinary man. A lot of times we, we read these events about prayer and we think, man, they must have been something else. No, they weren't. They're just like you. They're just like me. I think it's Acts 14, Paul performed that healing act at Lystra and the people were amazed, you know, and they thought, it, they, they thought they were being visited by the heavenly host and they wanted to make an offering, a sacrifice. And Barnabas, Bar, Bar, Barnabas was like, who was there with Paul said, no, 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 we're, 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 just, we're just, just like you. We're not gods, we're, we're just like you. See, that's when extraordinary things happen. When just ordinary saints like you and me, when we collectively set our minds upon this praying always, persistently, ask, seek, knock, present tense, when Jesus says that, ask, seek, knock, it's unceasing, always, ask, seek, knock. Parable of the unjust judge, Luke 18, the woman pleaded earnestly, persistently, and finally, the text says, I love the phrase, it says the judge gave her justice because he was wearing her out. And the point of the story isn't that God is like that judge who doesn't really want to respond. That's not the point of the parable. It's be like the widow. Pray unceasingly. And when just ordinary people, ordinary saints pray, the extraordinary happens. So in our compulsion to speak, and James recognized that, in our compulsion to speak, let us do it in the highest form. Let us pray. Father, how often it is that in our faith journey we allow the simplest things to drift away. Those things that are the greater work become taken for granted. And Father, I pray that you would rejuvenate us and re-impress upon us the urgency of the centrality of prayer in the life of every believer, not just some, not just the great saints, but just the ordinary saints like us in this room. And that Father, that we might realize that it's only as we pray always and unceasingly that as we maintain that attitude of prayer that we are able to be the kind of people that you would have us to be out in our world. And so Father, as we go, might we go in that spirit of prayer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And as we stand to be dismissed, it will be this blessing from Paul to Timothy, and now from me to you, from 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.